morning. All right, I am really excited to be starting this new series with you. Um, the series that we're in starting today is called The Plan, and this series is going to take you, uh, we're, it's going to take us all the way to May. This will be the longest series we've done since I've been here. And the focus of the plan is on learning the story of the whole Bible. If you're like me, you may have gotten out of the Sunday school system when you were a kid, really knowing individual stories well, but not necessarily knowing how they fit together. So you really know Jonah and the whale, David and Goliath, uh, you know, the uh, walls of Jericho, you know, all, all those stories that are, have been set to music, right? But you may not know how they fit together and how that whole story, uh, the, how the Bible is actually one story, and those are all episodes in it. And so the focus of the plan is on telling the whole story of Scripture as one story. And I'm really excited because uh, when, this is something that I first started working on when I was a youth pastor because I really wanted the kids in our youth group to be able to understand that story. And so I've taught this as a youth group uh, curriculum, as a, a young adult small group curriculum, as a little kids curriculum. This is the first time I've done it uh, for the, a whole, as a sermon series. But we're not just doing it as a sermon series, but because it's in the sermon, it's also going to be in our small groups. But it's also going to be our youth group curriculum, and it's going to be our treasure seekers curriculum on Wednesday nights. So every age of the church is going to be going through these stories at the same time. So you can sit around your family dinner table and talk about the same stories and essentially the same, the same lessons that we're learning. So I'm really excited about how all this is going to come together. I'm really hoping that... Uh, through this series, we're really, we are developing an ability to understand what the story of Scripture is and how everything fits together. But the first question, because we're going to set up this whole series today, is why such a focus on the story of the Bible? We've talked a lot over the last few months about what kind of book the Bible is. And if, depending on your view of what the Bible is, you may or may not feel like knowing the whole story of Scripture is important. If the Bible is a book of doctrine, if it's an encyclopedia or uh, something like that, then the stories are really just of historic, historical significance, of things that happen. But, as you may be able to tell from what I've preached before, I don't believe that the Bible is an encyclopedia or a doctrinal handbook. So what kind of book is the Bible? It's a very diverse book. There's a lot of different types of content in the Bible. But if we had to put it in one category, what category would it fit in? Would it fit in? Well, let's look at how it starts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay? That's how it starts. Now let's look at how it ends. The last thing that's said before John wraps up with all of his all the, the closing matter in the in Genesis and Revelation says. Uh, there will be no more night. They will have no need of the light of lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. What kind of a book starts with in the beginning and ends with they will reign forever and ever? What kind of a book starts with once upon a time and ends with and they live happily ever after? It's a story, right? The Bible, if we have to put it in one category, the Bible is a story. Now, you may be thinking over the, the table of contents of the Bible, and you're going to say, yeah, but only part of it's a story. It's not even actually necessarily that big of a part, right? And if you're looking at the table of contents, you would be right. If we break down the books of the Bible by 
by their genre, 35% of the books of the Bible, a little over a third, are story books. 32% of them are about doctrine, 23 are about prophecy, 5% are songs, and 5% are wisdom. It's only, it's only like a third. Except, not all books of the Bible are the same size, right? So what if we look at how many chapters are devoted to each one of these genres? Now it jumps. Now 50% of the Bible is story, and 19% is prophecy, 14% is songs, 7% is wisdom, and only 10% is doctrine. Ah, but not all chapters are the same length either. So now let's look at word count. By how many words the Bible spends in each of these categories, and now it jumps to 65% of the Bible is story. 65%, two-thirds. 18% is prophecy, 6% is songs, 4% is wisdom, and 7% is doctrine. What kind of book is the Bible? It is a story. Now, you may be a little bit uncomfortable, and I've taught this before, people have gotten a little bit uncomfortable that I'm using the word story rather than history. Right? And, it, and there's a reason why I'm using that word, but it is not to make you question whether the Bible is true. Because the fact is, the only reason we care about the Bible as much as we do is that the Bible is a true story. But there's a difference between a true story and history. When we write history, history is supposed to be completely unbiased. It's supposed to be, you know, disconnected from any side and not passing judgment on one side or the other. That's what we expect from history books. The Bible is not a history book in that sense. It is not unbiased. The Bible picks the side, right? And actually, it's because it picks the side of God that it is completely true. If it tried to be unbiased and say, maybe God's right and maybe someone else is right, that would not actually be true. Because the truth is, God actually is right. So the Bible is a true story, meaning that it's not just reporting events, but it's telling them from a particular point of view. And it's connecting them together to communicate a message. It's not just reporting random events as they come up. You can find a lot of events in an encyclopedia that are irrelevant. But the Bible puts together a story. It picks the moments that are important and the parts of that story that are important. So it is a story, and it is a true story. But there are a lot of true stories that don't matter to me. I mean, well, actually, I, I, I like history books, so there's probably stories. I like a lot of stories that are still irrelevant to me. Like the War of the Roses is completely irrelevant to my life. I find it interesting. But this is not just some interesting historical story. The reason we care about the story of the Bible is because the Bible is your story. The Bible is your story. It is the story that gives meaning to your life. Because there's a gap in the story. There's a gap from Acts to Revelation. And you fit in that part of the story. Because you keep filling in the gaps, and you keep following the plot lines of the Bible, at a certain point, you could say, and on such and such a day, you were born. And you entered the story. This is supposed to be our story. And that's one of the reasons why it's so important for us to know the story of the Bible is because it gives our lives meaning. And one of the things that we're finding is that the better understanding you have of the story of the Bible, the stronger your faith will be. 
Because if your faith is in a series of disconnected stories that you learned in Sunday school, it can be really hard to let those rule your life and give, give your life a direction. So one of the things we're finding in youth ministry, we talked about this at the convention this last summer, is it's important to teach students to see the whole story and to know where they are in it. Because it shows you where you're going. Because meaning to your day-to-day life. So it matters for us to know, I, this is my story, this is the story I'm living out, and this is where my life is supposed to be going. But it's not just your story individually. It's not my story. It's important for us to recognize that the Bible is everyone's story. This is not just the direction my life is supposed to be going. It's the direction your life is supposed to be going. It's also the direction that the person who rang up my groceries, their life is supposed to be going. And the person I meet on the street is where their life is supposed to be going. The person that cut me off in traffic is where their life is supposed to be going. The, like, all the people that we meet, this is their story too. And so another thing we found is that knowing this story is not just essential to strengthening our faith, but it is also incredibly important to sharing our faith. When you share faith with someone, you're inviting them into a story. And one of the things that keeps us from being able to share our faith is not being able to tell the story. Have you ever actually thought about that? Like, how would you... That's why we use tracks so often. Because tracks help us to tell the story. Because we're, we're generally not very good at being able to just tell people the story of, of humanity. And so it's another reason why we're really focusing on this this year is it helps us to strengthen our faith. It also helps us to be able to share our faith with others because we know the story that we're a part of. Now, you, I know this church, before I got here, you went through a program called The Story where you read through the story of the Bible arranged in a particular way. And this is not that because we're not just reading the stories of the Bible. In fact, we're going to skip probably the majority of them. We're not... This is not about knowing the order of the individual stories, but this is about knowing the plot of the one story. And so what we're going to be doing is under, learning what is the plot that connects all of these stories and how, does, how do we know where this, such, you know, how do we know what David and Goliath means to this big overarching story, the, the overall plot. So today what we're going to do is we're going to figure out what is that overall plot. The basics of a story are this. You have a main character who wants to do something. That's a story. A main character doing something. Right? And the main character is, another word for the main character is a protagonist. The protagonist is the one who is moving the plot forward by trying to accomplish something. Now, the protagonist isn't always the good guy. Um, that's actually, in a lot of movies, the one trying to get, a lot of crime movies, the one trying to accomplish something is the bad guy and the cop is trying to stop them, right? But the protagonist is the person who moves the story forward. And then that protagonist has a goal that they're, they're trying to accomplish. So, Frodo Baggins is a protagonist in Lord of the Rings, and he's moving the plot. His, his goal is to take the ring and destroy it in Mount Doom. And so that is the story, is his journey to accomplish that task. Uh, in the first Star Wars movie, it was, uh, you can actually, I realized you can do this one of two ways. Luke Skywalker is the main character, and his goal is to get the Death Star plans to Princess Leia. But actually, I think you should say Princess Leia is the protagonist because she wants to destroy the Death Star, and Luke is, like when Luke's story wraps up and he gets the plans to her, the story keeps going because there's more to do. But the point is, there's a main character, they want to do something. That's the basics of understanding the story. So, Let's look at the Bible. Who is the main character who is doing something in the Bible? 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The main character, the protagonist of the Bible is God. See, I said the Bible is your story, but ultimately it's God's story, and we are characters in God's story. Now, it's the story of God in us because there's literally an eternity of God's existence before the story starts. It starts with Him creating. But it's ultimately, it's the story of God and what God is doing in the world. Okay? So the main character is God. And because God is the main character, He is the protagonist, that means that God has a plan. Something He is working to accomplish throughout the story of the Bible. And what I'm going to argue is that in Genesis 1, you can get the essential elements of God's plan that will drive the plot for the entire rest of the Bible. That everything that happens after Genesis 1 is set in motion by that chapter, and we can see exactly what it is that God is wanting to accomplish in the world. And that that plan being accomplished is what drives the plot in every story. Okay? So, the question is, what is God's plan? And we're going to look at Genesis 1, and we're going to identify four elements. I'm going to uh, describe God's plan in four parts that are always at play when you read any story of the Bible. Okay? First thing that we see is God creates. It says, God, um, uh, God said, let there be light, and there was light. He separates the light from the darkness. We have night and day. It's the first day. He's, in a way, he's creating time, sequences of light and day. On the second day, God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water, this dome that holds back the heavenly waters he's creating the sky. And then he says, uh, on the third day, let the water under the sky be gathered in one place and let dry ground appear. There's dry ground, and then he says, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds, and it was so. And that's the third day. On the fourth day, God said, Let there be lights in the sky, in the vault of the sky, to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years, and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. On the fifth day, God said, Let the waters teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. And on the sixth day, God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kind, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. As we get the story of creation, we get this very intricate uh, description of God creating an ornate world with a, with a very intelligent, with a very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? There's, there's a design to it, Right? There's an intention. There's a purpose behind all of this. And so, the first thing, the first part of God's plan is that God makes a place. This is where the story starts. They start telling the story of God not when He began, or not any time before creation. He didn't begin. It's probably part of the why. But He starts the, start the story when He creates a place. A beautiful world full of living things. So, God's goal in the story of the Bible is to create a place. But the climax, well, the first climax of the creation story, there's one more thing for him to create on day six. It says, God said, let, them, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky. We'll pause there. God makes human beings. 
And if you know the rest of the Bible, you know they're going to play a kind of a significant role in the rest of the story, right? They're kind of important to the plot. So, he creates a place, and then he creates people. He made human beings to live in his world. Now, why are human beings so important in God's plan? Why are they more important than all the other creatures that he made? It's because human beings are set apart by their purpose. They have a function. Notice what God says. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock, over the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Very uh, detailed, uh, repetitive instructions, very clear. Human beings are made for a purpose. And if you ever have discussions like, what are we here for? And, and what's the purpose of life? The Bible actually answers that in a very simple way in exactly the place you would expect to find it. When he makes them, when he makes them, he says, this is their purpose. They are going to bear my image, which in the ancient world meant if you were bearing the image of a king, it means you were carrying their authority. An ambassador would carry the image of a king with them, and that's how you knew they represented the king. And that, that human being, those human beings are supposed to rule over the earth on God's behalf. That's their mission. They, he says rule, and unfortunately, in Christian history, some Christians have taken this to mean, well, we can do whatever we want with the planet. It doesn't matter what I do with living creatures or the animals. I'm in charge of the land. I'm in charge of because it's ours to do with whatever we want. It's not how it works. When I explain this in the youth group, I would tell the kids, this is like when your parents put you in charge while they're out. Like, you are in charge. You get to make some decisions, but you're going to answer for what you did when they get home. Right? You are in charge on their behalf, but mom and dad are still are still in charge. That's what this means. We were made, uh, it's been said, um, Tim Mackey said, uh, we're God's middle management. Which I think is, is a funny way to put it. But that's God made us to manage this world on his behalf. So, so God makes a place filled with people who have a purpose. Okay, those are the first three parts of the plan. But we have not reached the climax of the creation story. We have not yet reached the most important day in the creation story. The most important day when God does the most important thing is day seven. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. The most important day when God does the most important thing, which is not take a nap. I mean, have you ever wondered why does God need to take a rest? Is he winded? I mean, it can't be because he's tired. It can't be because he just can't work for seven days in a row. He's got to take a break. Right? That's not, so why does God take a break? Why is it so important that he rests? Well, you have to understand what resting means in Hebrew and in this, in this worldview and the way rest, God resting is used in the rest of the Bible. It's not just a matter of not working. It's certainly not a matter of relaxing. A better way to translate it might be that he came to rest. See, what we find in the Bible when it talks about God resting is that God has a resting place. And so when God rests on the seventh day, 
He is coming to rest in creation. Because creation wasn't made for us. We're the middle management. Creation was made for God to inhabit. That's why we see in other places when it talks about God resting, it typically talks about Him having a resting place. In Psalm 132 it says, Let us go to His dwelling place, let us worship at His footstool, saying, Arise, Lord, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. talking about Jerusalem as God's resting place. For the Lord has chosen Zion, He has desired it for His dwelling, saying, This is my resting place forever and ever, and here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. This is the culmination of creation, is God creates this place, this intricate, ornate place, and He appoints His chosen representatives to run it for Him, to manage it, while He comes to rest in it. He's, he's coming to rest in creation. So the fourth part of God's plan is presence. God came to live in His creation. This is where it was all leading. This is the culmination of God's plan. Okay? A place, a people, with a purpose, in His presence. That is God's design for creation. That is God's design for His world. That is what He is working to accomplish. And my argument is going to be that this is always what God is working to accomplish. Oh, I went too far. Sorry. Uh, this is always what God is working to accomplish in every story in the Bible. And the plot is always, will this design happen or not? Because there's a weak part in the plan. That's the people. Right? We're the weak part. God, for whatever reason, decided that He was going to do a joint project with us. And when we enter the story and we become part of the plan, suddenly there's a question of whether it's going to happen or not. And that's what drives the plot of the Bible. If you're not convinced, let me, let me show you. I mean, we're going to be spending the whole year seeing how this draws out in all parts of the Bible. But let me show you how this design comes up in other places. This design is at the heart of the Old Covenant. This is exactly the same design on a smaller scale that, that we see in the covenant that God made with Abraham and with the Israelites. Let's look at how Moses summarizes the covenant in Deuteronomy 4. He says, Because God loved your ancestors and chose their descendants after them, He brought you out of Egypt by His presence and His great strength to drive out before you nations greater and stronger than you, and to bring you into their land to give it to you for your inheritance as it is today. Acknowledge and take heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. Keep His decrees and commandments which I am giving you today so that it may go well with you and your children after you and that, that you may live long in the land that the Lord your God gives you for all time. So, God chose a people. Abraham and his descendants. The people of Israel are God's people. And he gives them a place, the promised land. That is to be their home. And he's going to, he's working with one people in one place to accomplish the plan on a small scale. And he gives them a purpose. He tells them line by line exactly what it looks like to rule on his behalf. He gives them 613 rules to guide them in ruling on God's behalf. And as they keep this, as they follow this law and they obey this covenant, it allows God to live in their presence in the tabernacle. 
And that's the driving thought throughout that story is, is God going to be able to continue to live with these people who are really bad at fulfilling their purpose? But that's the covenant. People, place, purpose, presence. Right? You're going to think, oh, well, that's, that's Old Testament stuff. That's plan A. But then Jesus came and gave us plan B. There is no plan B in the Bible. There is no plan B in the Bible. There is one plan. And when Jesus comes to preach, what we find is that this design is also at the heart of the gospel. How do we summarize the gospel? Well, there's a lot of answers to that. Better question, how does Jesus summarize the gospel? Jesus says, Repent. For the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, if you're reading through the Bible and you jump from the Old Testament into the New Testament, you read the Gospels, and in Matthew you start talking about the kingdom of heaven, this phrase kind of comes out of nowhere. Like, why is he talking about the kingdom of heaven? What is it like, as if I already know what that means. Well, it's because the, the Jews at this time were using the phrase, the kingdom of heaven, to describe the promises of the Old Testament. You think about what does it mean for the kingdom of heaven to come? The word there for kingdom can mean to reign, right? It's the reign of God is coming. What does it mean for a king to reign? Well, it means that that king has a people that he reigns over. And for him to reign, it means that people are doing what he calls them to do. You can be a king. Like, how many times has a king been driven out of his country and claimed to still be king, but nobody was doing what he said? He wasn't really a king. Right? He wasn't reigning. So the kingdom coming means that people are actually obeying God. They're actually fulfilling their purpose. And the kingdom is coming near. It means that the kingdom is coming to this place and people in this place are starting to fulfill their purpose of following God. And so as Jesus proclaims the kingdom of God is coming, he's proclaiming to God's people that they are being restored to their purpose in that place. And the presence of God, Jesus is right there proclaiming that to them. And, and the expectation of the Israelites was that as they returned to their purpose, as God returned to their purpose, returned them to their purpose, His presence would come. They didn't realize yet that it was in the form of Jesus. But the promises of a, of a people in a place following their purpose in the presence of God, that was what the kingdom of heaven meant. It was just a shorthand way of describing all of that. Not only is this what Jesus is proclaiming when he preaches the gospel, but this design is also in the mission, at the heart of the mission of the church. Jesus basically says, uh, you know, through his death on the cross and his resurrection, which we'll get to at Easter, it'll come up before then as well, but we'll definitely get to it at Easter. He says, I have fulfilled the plan, I have made the plan possible. Right? I've made, I've made the plan possible. So now it's time to go out and to invite people into it. So what does he say? All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Go and make disciples in all nations. Go to all of these places. Make disciples and baptize them into the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Make them my people. Go to these places, make them my people, teach them to fulfill their purpose by obeying everything I have commanded you, and I will be with you always. Presence. People, place, purpose, presence. And finally, you need one more 
place to, to see that this story goes all the way through. If you read the story from the beginning to the end, what you find is that it ends pretty much the way it begins. This design is the ultimate destiny of creation. See, again, we get, we have, there's all different types of plan Bs that we come up with where we think that the end is supposed to be different from the beginning. But there is a plan B, and God just changed what he's trying to do in the world. But that never actually happens in the Bible, and the proof of that, most clearly, is how it ends the way it begins. Because often what we think is the point of my life is to you know, go to heaven when I die. But the point of being a Christian is you get to go to a different place when you die. You get to go to be with God. This isn't what we see at the end of the story. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Notice at the end, God's presence comes down to the people, to the new earth. The point, the end of the story is not we go to be with him, but he comes to be with us. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. God's people, His renewed people, living in a new place and renewed creation, obeying Him, being His servants, and reigning forever and ever, in the presence of God so clear that they don't need a temple, they don't even need a sun, because they're living in the, the absolute presence of God. People, place, purpose, presence. This is the story of the Bible. From beginning to end. And in every story, what we're going to see starting next week is in every story, we see this is the design, this is the goal, and the question is, will God's people live up to it? And how will God respond to what they do? And ultimately, that's the challenge for each one of us. Because as I talk about this, I'm not just talking about some interesting story or some interesting mythology from the past. I am talking about your story. And so for every one of us, the question is, how are we going to live up to it? And how is God going to respond to that? That's what's going to drive this, this reading through the Bible, is finding out how does, how does God's people live up to this and how does God respond to it? Because that's what's going to happen to us, is that we are called to live up to this and God is going to respond to us. So, with these these sermons, I want to end by making this your story. And I want to set you up to be thinking in this way for the next nine months at least. To be thinking of this as your story. So what that means, first of all, is that God made you for a people. It's a weird phrasing, but you'll see, because it's parallel in each one. God made you for a people. God did not make you... Um, God, God made you to be part of His family. God doesn't make people He has no intentions for. God doesn't make extra people. He doesn't make random people. He doesn't make people that will just go their own way while he focuses on others. God makes every person to be part of this plan, to be part of his people. He wants you. He made you because he wants you. Right? That, is, that is your place in this story. There is not a human being who doesn't have a place in this story who is not intended to be among God's people. 
So this is your story. God made you to be part of it. That is not just an option. It is what you were designed for. It was what God had in mind when He designed you, when we decided what your talents would be, what your passions would be, what your height would be, what your hair color would be. He made you for this, to be part of this people. Not only that, but because you're meant to be part of His people, God made you for His presence. This is really important for us to understand because I think we sometimes miss, anytime anybody might think, I can get along fine without God. Well, I don't really have a place for religion in my life. Or, you know, it's just not that important. What we have to understand is what Scripture teaches us is that we are designed for God's presence. You are designed to flourish in relationship with God. And if God is missing, then an essential part, the essential part of your life is missing. You understand, in Scripture, in the Christian worldview, your soulmate is God. Your only soulmate is God. The one you were made to be with is God. And you will not be fulfilled without that relationship. You will not reach who you were made to be without that relationship. And here's another one that's really important for us to remember because sometimes we lose sight of this. That God made you for a place. Too often we say, well, I'm, this is not my home, I'm just a passing through. And we might say that about our earthly life to think, well, you know, nothing matters in this life except that I get into the next life and maybe that I bring as many people with me as I can. But this, this world can, pardon the phrasing, but I mean it literally, this world can go to hell because I'm going to heaven. Right? That's not what we find in the design. What we find in the design is that we are made for a place. God is going to renew this place. And so you are made to be where God put you. So that might mean, because we sometimes say, I'm passing through this life, but we also say, I'm passing through this phase in life. I'm passing through this job. I'm passing through this thing that's going on, and this isn't really ultimately that important, or I don't really have anything to do here. But I don't care where you are, and I don't care how meaningless the, that phase may be, or, or what, where you are, God has a purpose for you to be there. God made you for this place, for this planet, for this town, for the home you live in, for the job you work in, for the, the, the places you go on your daily basis, for the grocery store you shop in. God made you for a place. You are there for a reason. Because place and purpose are tied together. Because God made you, God made you for a place you're not passing through. You're here for a reason. But also, God made you for a purpose. And your purpose is tied to being in that place. How does God's reign come to your workplace? It comes when people in your workplace obey God and fulfill their purpose, right? And where does that start? That starts with you. God's kingdom spreads when people do His will in the places where they're at. And so we are called to go in the places where God has put us and to do His will. And you may feel like the places you go are not that important, but there is no part of God's creation that is not important. I used to tell the kids in our youth group, like, I am not the prime missionary to our high schools because there are, there are conversations that you kids can have with each other that I could never have. 
There are places you can go that I can't go. God has put you there for a reason. And that's true of every one of us, that there are places you can go and people you can talk to and things you can do that no one else can do. And we are called to do those things in that place to fulfill our purpose. That's what the kingdom of God spreading means. So for every one of us, recognizing our place in the story means that we realize that I have a purpose in my life. God made me for a reason. God doesn't make useless people. He doesn't make people to just go on his shelf and be forgotten about or to just hang out and tell the new creation. He made you for a purpose. Our job as Christians is to go out and to fulfill that purpose. Now, it may take some work to figure out what that is in your life. And that's one of the reasons why we do this together is we help each other figure out our purpose and we help each other figure out what it looks like to live out our purpose in those particular places. But that is what we are all called to be. And that is how your life fits into God's plan. That you are one of His people. He has put you in a place for a purpose and He has given you His presence to fulfill that. Amen? I'm really excited to be going through this story with you and see how this carries through the Bible from beginning to end. As we wrap up this sermon, I'm going to invite you to consider some next steps. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) You are designed to rule on the earth on God's behalf. Sorry, I just got caught up, got too excited, and forgot the place. I hope that's a good sign. Uh, Here's the next steps that I want to invite you to consider. First of all, giving your life to Jesus. Maybe you haven't become part of His people. Maybe you haven't stepped into this purpose and you need to give your life to Jesus and you want to start that journey, today is the best day to enter into the story that you were made for. And so if that's a decision that you're going to make, we encourage you to come forward as we sing the final song or uh, talk to a staff member afterward or if you're watching online, you can get a hold of the church office, you can call us, email us, text us, however you want to get a hold of us, we'd love to talk through that decision with you. If you want to get more involved and more connected with this congregation, I encourage you to attend one of our Connect classes. This happens once a month. We're on the first Sunday of the month. We have an hour, an hour and a half class where we just explain who the church is, uh, what we do, and how you can get involved. And so the next one will be on October 5th from 1230 to 2, and you can check the box on the connection card if you'd like to get involved there. You can also join a small group, and especially as we go through the plan, they're going to be going through the the sermon notes and talking through and figuring out together as a community what it looks like to live out God's plan in our lives. And we really encourage you, if you want to be a part of a small group, check that box, and Pastor Jack will get you plugged into one. If you want to fulfill that purpose in a concrete way, you can join one of our service teams. Because that's one of the ways that God calls us. We have lots of service teams that give people opportunities to give back and to, to fulfill His purpose in those ways. If you want to do that, you can check the box on the connection card as well. I encourage you to consider those decisions as we stand and sing our final song.